KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. In this special edition of Flashpoint, we take a look at institutionalized racism. It is really baked into the very foundation of our nation. White people have not gotten what they had in America uh, without a lot of assistance. Why this invisible force is so hard to eliminate. So we can't just have reform policies. We need to start building into the place where we're dismantling. The critical piece of the puzzle necessary to redesign a society where racial equality is reality. We dig in. Then Porch Richmond shop owners Donna Mahiro, the security agent who took on looters saving businesses thousands. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is institutionalized racism, defined as the systematic distribution of resources, power, and opportunity in society to the benefit of people who are white and to the exclusion of people of color. These systems have read their ugly head in policing in America, most recently with the death of George Floyd and the COVID-19 pandemic. As the nation is protesting, begging for change, how do we dismantle these systems that oppress millions? With me to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Charles Gallagher, Chair of the Sociology and Criminology Departments at LaSalle University, Reverend Mark Tyler, Pastor of Mother Bethel AME Church, and Co-Chair of the Board of Power, Stacey Hawkins, Rutgers Law Professor and Diversity Law Expert, and finally, Erica Almiron, Social Justice Activist with Me Hente. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to tee up uh, Professor Gallagher here. Uh, institutionalized racism, I tried to define it but can you try to explain the concept of what that is? Yeah, I think your definition was was very good, Sherry. But, you know, the idea is that institutional racism is often invisible. And it's something where you don't notice that um, if you live in Lower Marion, that they spend $23,000 on kids in high school. And, and two and a half miles away at Urbuck High School, they're spending $13,000 a year. And those resources are crucial. And, um, and not only is, is that in one example of the way that we fund our schools, embed it uh, in our political system, which is an institution, um, but the, the folks that are living in these communities um, live in environments that were fundamentally built by the federal government um, through basically the whole movement of white people to the suburbs and allowing basically um, veterans to get benefits that allow them to purchase low-income housing um, that wasn't available to African-Americans, Latinos. So again, there in every single sphere of America, institutions have basically rigged the system for white people. And, and the problem is today is that it doesn't, it looks like a normal course of things. So, so much of white America, they, they don't want to hear about institutional racism or hear it in the abstract. They certainly don't want to hear the idea of white privilege. And we can talk about this later, but this, I think, is one going to be one stumbling block about moving forward because most of white America doesn't feel that they benefited in any way um, yeah. today from what happened basically 50, 100, 400 years ago. And so, Mark, I want to bring you in here because it's invisible, as uh, Professor Gallagher said. Um, and so why is it so hard to see? And yet 
people who are experiencing the racism know it's there. Yeah, I mean, well, it's hard to see because if you're benefiting from it, uh, the last thing you want is for somebody to blow your narrative. So if your narrative is, you know, my family came over here with nothing. They pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. Nobody ever helped them. So why can't you all just do the same thing to acknowledge institutionalized racism and the help that white people have systemically, you know, um, had in somehow acknowledging the wealth gap, uh, the gap in home ownership, uh, you know, the education gap. I mean, look at all of these gaps and how uh, institutionalized racism, white supremacy has contributed to it. To acknowledge it would mean that somehow you have to acknowledge that um, you have not necessarily gotten there by yourself. My bishop, uh, Bishop Ingram, often talks about if you see a turtle sitting on top of a post, realize that it didn't get itself there. And I think to acknowledge it really is that, you know, that yeah. uh, the white people have not gotten what they had in America uh, without a lot of assistance and namely holding back other people. Yeah. And I want to bring uh, our, you and Stacey because uh, we have laws that specifically uh, prohibit the type of discrimination. We, we say, we know, look, there's anti-discrimination laws here. All this, why does it not seem to touch this whole institutionalized racism concept? Well, the important thing to acknowledge, Cherry, is that racism is woven into the fabric of our nation. We have a constitution that not only recognizes but ratifies a system of chattel slavery that is premised on an ideology of white supremacy. And so it is really baked into the very foundation of our nation. And so notwithstanding laws that try to go back and uh, remediate those centuries of white supremacy and race-based discrimination, uh, we've not ever reckoned with the fact that this is a part of, it's woven deeply into the social fabric of our nation. And again, we've got to dismantle the institutions on which this nation were founded that acknowledge and ratify white supremacy if we're ever going to hope to make meaningful progress on racial equality. Yeah. And Erica, you've been on the front lines for years. That's how I met you. Um, and and we've seen like it, the real world on the ground impact. Could you explain? And it's, it expands um, to all, just about every type of person of color has kind of fallen in to the trap of the system. Yeah, I think uh, for all the years that I've been doing social justice work, what I've been able to see is that racism does really affect people of color, but in particular, it really does affect black communities. And so Latinos are not a race. Latinos are an ethnicity. So when you think about the intersections of an Afro-Latino and the ways that like uh, policing and immigration could impact their lives, uh, that is immense. And then when you think about the ways that language access or um, things of that nature, or, or like English as an only language in this country, that is another effect. And so a lot of the work that I've been trying to build over the years has been to bridge that gap and to build unity between black and brown communities in particular, so that we can be unified in fights. And in particular right now, as you're hearing the call for defund the police, it's about making sure that we're standing shoulder to shoulder with each other to dismantle these systems of oppression that have been keeping us, us down for, for centuries. Yeah, and I mean, that's the key because I, I, we did a whole podcast on defund the police. People have no concept of what uh, what a new um, 
way of looking at these systems would be like. And that's just one system. And that's what I want to expound on this, um, because Dr. Gallagher, I mean, there are so many systems where this permeates. Uh, could you explain like the buckets? Because there's like people think it's just policing, but it's not. It's like every single it's so many different structures. Right. And every I mean, every and the Reverend got it right. Every single quality of life indicator breaks by race and it, who's on the receiving, the better receiving end are white folks. Right. And I, and I think that what we're the real obstacles are going to find. And I want to kind of just 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 kind of riff a little bit on, on what the Reverend said is that, you know, there's the narrative now, the ideological narrative is so embedded that, you know, my grandparents and I can make the argument about me. I have immigrants from Italy and from Ireland. My grandfather was an immigrant. You know, I can make the argument, no one gave me anything. Well, that's simply not true. My father got the GI Bill, and he went to college and graduate school on the GI Bill. And if you look at Philadelphia, it's a very good example. Uh, and, and I really do want to push back about white people saying that they have never been the recipients of privilege. I always ask my students, look back in your family tree, especially my white students. And I say, let me, when did someone in your family join a union? You know, because union was the ticket up and out, right? From South Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, you know, I'm a fourth generation Philly kid. And I said, you do realize that those unions were monopolized by white people. You were, you could not get into a union. And so the idea is that, so you get into a union and then basically you get into a union and then you can send your kid to, to LaSalle and then the grandson becomes a doctor or a lawyer. That, that upward, that intergenerational upward mobility basically was made possible by institutions that excluded people of color. But that's invisible, you know, and I think that that is what is going on ideologically. Um, you know, the law professor just said this, that it's embedded. And now it's not just embedded, it's ideological. And so how do you convince a, a, a big part of the population that you are where you are, you are middle class, you are upper middle class because you basically got there because you excluded other groups you didn't have to compete with them. And the fact is they were excluded from the resources that were given to you. Yeah. And that is all white America doesn't want to hear that the system was rigged for them. Right. Because then you say, well, wow, you're right. I'm the recipient of something that I didn't earn. And people just it's just it's just too uncomfortable to think about. Yeah. And I want to go back to you, Reverend. I mean, at this point, we have a diverse coalition of people protesting in the streets, saying that racism is wrong. But the focus has been on uh, policing. Do you think that the message is clear that it's not just policing? Well, I think it's clear for some, obviously. So some people actually get that, that this is, you know, bigger. But for people like us, you know, Erica and I uh, are part of multiple tables. Our work has intersected a lot over the last uh, five or six years. So, you know, we have people there who are who are white, who get that all of this is connected you know, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about health care, uh, climate justice and the stuff that gets dumped in black and brown and, you know, poor communities. But for others, we have to, you know, un you know, help people see that this is as egregious as what happened to George Floyd was to watch. You know, if George Floyd had just simply been arrested that day, that that story would not have ended there, you know, to be charged with counterfeit, you know, counterfeiting. And if he couldn't afford a good attorney, now you're thrown into a criminal justice system that is already predetermined that you're guilty. And if you don't have the kind of money to get experts and, you know, uh, lawyers like the one that we have on this call right now, that George Floyd's life 
could have still just been, I mean, just absolutely ruined from that one day in a way that a white person might not have to go through. So it's not just what happens with the police. The police is where we see it most, and you can see it in an immediate way, the differences. But it's about helping people see, take a 30-foot, you know, 30,000-foot view now and see how this is in every aspect of life. As someone said earlier, it's baked into the system. Yeah, and I gotta, I mean, because one of the things I know, um, uh, Stacey, you work in diversity law and you work with a lot of these big old companies trying to convince them to really try to dismantle their systems. And it's so challenging for you because they don't, people are not trying to open up the coffers. One of the most challenging things I always deal with, and I say this all the time, people want change without doing anything differently. And it's impossible, right? It's, a, it's impossible to accomplish the kind of radical change that we need to see occur in this country if we're not willing to do things radically differently. Um, and so I think that that's the first step. The first step is acknowledging that um, the system as it is is not working. And, um, and in many ways, just like we're talking about, you know, defunding or dismantling police, some systems are so fundamentally corrupt that they cannot be reformed that they simply have to be torn down and rebuilt from the ground up. And, uh, you know, some companies are in that position, you know, so they, they talk about they want to, you know, hire in new people. But if you don't have anyone at the top, we know that the more diverse your leadership is, the more diverse your hiring is going to be, right? So if you have all white leadership, it's very high, hard to hire in diversity, right? And, and, and so in many ways, we really have to just kind of erase the slate and start anew. We, we can't try to reform existing systems, especially systems systems that are steeped in uh, uh, white supremacy, that are steeped in inequality, those systems can't be reformed. Um, sometimes we have to acknowledge that we simply have to throw out um, everything that we know and start anew. Yeah. And Erica, when I, and I, this is how I view some of this stuff, a lot of symbolism. And, and how do you cross from the symbolism, take it down to the statue, no more flags, this, that, and the third, to actual action. And what Stacey and, and the Reverend and the professor, we're all talking about actual action and dismantling. How do you push it from one to the other? I mean, I would say that it takes time to build an organizing base and to be able to have people who are working across each other. And I think this moment for defunding the police is one of those moments that when groups have been working together for a very long time, they can start working together to fundamentally make these changes. I was really excited to see the Rizzo statue removed, but it's also something that communities had been asking for for years, right? And it took for the city to burn for essentially to come down in 20 minutes. And so, and that is symbolic, right? We asked for it, but it was symbolic. But there are lots of changes, not just reform. It's like the, the defund the police ask is actually about taking money and putting it in places that our communities have been asking for for a long time. So we can't just have reform policies. We need to start building into the place where we're dismantling systems and structures of white supremacy. Yeah, and that goes to this question, Professor. I mean, um, white folks are definitely on the front lines, you know, battling for this end to police brutality. What do you think is gonna happen when we start talking about the dollars? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, um, I think that you're right. These things that are symbolic are, in many ways free there's no cost to me you're not you're not cutting into my pie um and that is where the rubber hits the road and i, mean, I think that school funding is one very good example about that that's done by property taxes there's much more equitable ways 
to put money in communities that are very wealthy into communities that basically have resource needs. But, you know, white America, you know, this is this is going to be part of the problem also, is that mm -hmm. I've gone to a few protests. At one protest I was walking, I thought this guy was waving us on and cheering. When I walked by, he was giving the finger to everyone walking by and screaming F you, F you, F you over and over again. And I kept thinking about it. I thought to myself, this guy is not an anomaly. Uh, we saw the person uh, in, in Whitefish, Montana, saying the same thing. The Navy captain got caught on Facebook. There's folks in Franklinville, right? The man was doing the same thing. Right. The, the, you know, having his knee on, on the mannequin's neck. And this is the open secret that white people know. They got racist people in their family. Their lovers are racist. Their friends are racist. Their co-workers are racist. And they don't call them out. They get this pass. They get a hall pass or a racist card pass. And, and I mean, the simplest way to start tomorrow is to say every white person is obligated to call people out that are white and they're white social networks because whites are the most segregated group in the, in the, in the country and call them out. You know, and again, that is, I, I just had to start at the inner, at the personal level. And, you know, I, I don't know a white person that doesn't have a story about an uncle, a cousin, a friend, you know, a best friend from high school that is a flaming racist and they do nothing. And they say, Oh, just let it go. Don't challenge them. Or we're, we're too close. Or I love my uncle. And, you know, that it takes some stepping into and being uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's just the individual level. And that doesn't happen. And, you know, and if imagine this. If 10% of the whites in the United States are racist, and that's maybe a low number, there's 200 million white people in the United States. That's 20 million people, like the people we saw on TV screaming, you yeah. know, black lives don't matter to anyone. Yeah. And I got to, so we, we saw this. I mean, Mark, everybody's been... Black people, people of color have been fighting for this for years. Uh, Erica mentioned as soon as the fire was lit, stuff starts rolling. How do you galvanize this moment? How do you say, you know what? We got their attention. How do we prioritize and get it, get as much done as we can in this window? Well, I mean, for activist groups, of course, and organizations like ours, like Power and Live Free, uh, it is, you know, we clearly know that the windows open, jump through now and bring all these demands. I mean, we didn't have to go look for new demands. We've got demands. We sent a letter to the mayor in December that said all the exact same things, you know, an independent uh, police advisory commission in the stop and frisk, uh, all of these different kind of things. So we're going to get as much as we can in this moment. I think the bigger question is what will white people do? Just uh, right before this program, I was in Allentown at a, um, at a very interesting demonstration with clergy with power in Lehigh Valley. And there, the white clergy persons came forward to confess their complicity in white supremacy and in racism and the ways in which they've been quiet when, you know, things have happened that they knew to be racist and, you know, basically, you know, confessing for the sin of that. Now, that's a fine start. But the question is, you know, not about what happened yesterday, but what will happen going forward? So will you have those same kind of conversations at school board meetings when we're looking at the ways in which the schools in the district in Allentown are set up and talk about, you know, we need to take resources from this school that has too much and give it to this that does not have as much and begin to bring parity? Um, that's a different question. And one, honestly, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't answer it. I'm sitting back waiting. I mean, I'm excited that all these white folk are in the street protesting and everybody has a Black Lives Matter poster. But let's see if 20 years from now that means at least to systemic change or will we realize that this was just a moment and not a movement? Yeah. And that's the question. Um, Stacey, how do we 
I mean, because this is going to take some time. You can't dismantle uh, systems that, as you mentioned, were baked in uh, in a few weeks. And and how do you keep folks focused enough to get this done? It could take years. It could absolutely take years. I mean, you know, we, we are 50, 60 years post-civil rights and we are still working for uh, a nominal progress. One thing that encourages me about this moment, um, because I tend to be uh, very pragmatic about these things and a, particularly in our information digital age, right with the 24 hour news cycle, we have a limited uh, public attention span. And, and especially in an election year, how do we keep the momentum going? I read the most encouraging thing the other day in the news, which is that a recent Monmouth University poll um, indicated that white Americans have shifted their perception on the pervasive nature of discrimination um, radically for the first time in decades. Um, and so according to their poll, over 70% of white Americans said that racial discrimination is a significant problem. That's a 26 point swing from just a few years ago. And one of the biggest impediments to fighting for racial change has been that white people don't think racial discrimination is a problem, right? Increasingly, we have people like Chief Justice Roberts in the recent case um, involving the Voting Rights Act simply saying discrimination is not an issue anymore. We're past the point where racial discrimination matters. And so a large part of the problem has been acknowledgement, right, that there is a, a problem that we have to fight against. And so I'm really encouraged that there is a shift, right? This moment of reckoning in the country um, that we're experiencing right now seems to be materially different, that white people have finally seen for themselves, they've come to a point of acknowledgement that we do still have a race problem in America. Um, and I think, you know, like they say in the AA program, the first step is admitting you have a problem. And that's what we were unable to do in America. We weren't simply able to acknowledge that there was a race problem. So I'm, yeah. I'm encouraged. You're encouraged. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think what's interesting ahead. also, I'm sorry, yeah, that, that uh, those polling knowledge, so I read the same polls. And I, it's very, very important because just a year or two ago that, you know, white America was saying that if blacks fail, it's their own fault. It wasn't systemic. It wasn't structural. That is a, a, a seismic shift. But I, I think what also that you have to, I think part of what is going on about why this might be a movement is that it became obvious quickly that this pandemic was killing people disproportionately as well. And that it was just hammering, slaughtering literally black and brown communities in a way that was very different. And it was basically, it was color linked to class. And it was who had access to healthcare, who lived in neighborhoods that had access to healthcare. Um, what was your occupation? What pre-existing conditions? And I think that that happened on top of this, these visuals. And again, it wasn't just uh, with this one murder we saw. It was three in a row. And on top of that, there is no leadership coming from the White House. And I think that th those three things came together in a way where it, it, it pulled open the curtain to some extent that this is. You know, this isn't just about, oh, someone's lazy or someone's doing this. This is systemic. And there was no one to try to smooth it over in our president. And I, I think the moment is now. And I, I, I think it's I think it is different than than before. And I think that what's going to be hard to do is like talk about defunding police. You know, that already is now a bad yeah. word. In some, you know, but but if you the way you brought it up earlier is that if you talk about defunding the police is moving, like reimagining and redirecting funds, police officers shouldn't be mental health workers or social workers or drug counselors. You fund those in communities. You fund rec centers. You fund job programs. 
people hear that like, oh, okay, I get that. Yeah, yeah. And we just, there was a video that just came out for Virginia, a man clearly having a mental break and police used force on him when he yeah. was not of danger to himself. But of course he was a black man. So he was tased until he bled. And he was clearly having, and, and in this case, probably a mental health worker should have come to help this man and not a couple of cops who have no real empathy or ability to deal with people having a mental break. And so Erica, do you think if this moment doesn't happen like it's supposed to, will we see more unrest? Do you think there's enough in, in you know tension here where it can ramp back up or do you think things are quiet? No, I think we are definitely at a place where this could keep on happening. Um, I think that the city right now has an opportunity to really address how they're gonna defund the police and at how much the current ask is, you know, 120 million. So we saw that the city gave 19 million. We're saying we want more, potentially more. And then every year to defund the police more and more till it's no longer an institution that we need to rely on. I also think um, you saw that the movement for black lives made an announcement about uh, nationwide actions on Juneteenth. Um, and there have already been demands from, from the movement for black lives for Trump to resign and from mi gente that has been moving for months now around the campaign of Fuera Trump to mobilize Latinos to do action to make sure that we no longer have Trump in power. He is not the only symbol of white supremacy, but we need to move people like him, him and people like him out of positions of power so that we can make the right decisions moving forward. So I see this moving, I see this, it's gonna keep on going and things don't change fast. We're gonna see more and more of these moments. Yeah, and so because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap up, but I wanna ask you all, what will have to become part of this moment to enable real change such that we dismantle these baked in racist systems? And I'll, and I'll start with you, Professor, and I'll end with Stacy, and, and we'll do it that yeah. way. Um, you know, I, I really think that, you know, it's not that I'm privileging whites here, but you know, let's just be real honest about it. You look at the Fortune 500 companies, Vice President Bob, look at the Senate, look at the House, uh, look at people that are in positions of authority and power. They're disproportionately white. And, and they have money and they have power and they shape policy and politics. Um, and I'm hoping, I, you know, and I'm not Pollyannish about it, but there is buy-in from the powers that be in some ways for the right reasons or maybe to sell products. Either way, I don't care. But unless there is buy-in in a real way from the people that pull the levers in society, um, we're gonna. I thought Michael Brown was the start of something. You know that. Yeah. that you know, I'm old enough to Rodney King. I said this. This has got to start something. Yeah. So I'm, I'm more optimistic because I think that uh, there's just no way to 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 write this off or to to just kind of let it simmer down because it's not going away. Yeah, Erica, your thoughts. I mean, I think that. I mean, I, I also remember Rodney King. Um, I was in high school, I believe, when that happened. And so I think those were like the moments where I was really starting to become awake. In my last 20 years of doing social justice work, I have seen major shifts in how things are happening. And essentially that like communities of color are starting to really work together because they understand that white supremacy is the problem. So I, I don't think that this is something that's not gonna keep moving. 
Um, but I do think that we need to keep growing our base. And I also think we have a younger generation who like, you know, even watching those TikTok videos of those young white kids who were just like crying about their parents not understanding. We're, we're seeing shifts in how young people are organizing. Most of the people who were tear gassed um, downtown and who were also attacked by police um, in West Philly, those were young people. They're, they're not afraid to step up right now. And so they make me very hopeful. Yeah, Reverend. What were the well, so moment? Yeah. Sure, sure. I'm, I'm just saying that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I am. And you can't be, um, you can't have a sense of, um, you, you cannot be infected by uh, hopefulness as you march the streets. I've been out like the last couple of weeks, almost every day. And most of those marches have been led uh, and filled with, you know, a ton of young white people. Um, and so, and yet, you know, the part of me that is part historian says, we've been here before, right? Uh, David Wills, who's a great scholar, wrote a piece about the gap between black and white and showed historically through the lens of the Christian church experience that, you know, there were moments where, you know, we came together and all of a sudden race came in and, you know, whites backtracked. Uh, the founding of my congregation is that story where blacks joined the Methodist church in the 1700s because the founder of the Methodist church, uh, John Wesley in England, was an avowed abolitionist. And yet when confronted with money, right, do we keep this commitment to being anti-slavery and lose white members who are slaveholders and they become Baptist? Or do we compromise on our values and keep our church together? And they chose keeping the church together and keeping the money. And that has been displayed over and over and over again in this 200 plus year history as a country. So while I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic, history is not on our side. The question again, I say, is not about where black folk and brown folk will be in this moment, but will white people have a real commitment to this moment and do something about it that is systemic and not just simply call for the firing of a police officer or a mayor or someone else, but will they themselves, you know, uh, push for real change? So that's the question for me. Yeah, not just actors, it's the system we need to uh, get on. And so Stacey, final word. I will say that the country really needs a public and collective reckoning with, again, our foundations in an ideology of white supremacy. So for instance, with respect to the police, we need to recognize the origins of policing in this country as slave patrols. If we don't reckon with the fact that th the country is built on an ideology of white supremacy, it is steeped in systems and structures designed to privilege whiteness and to oppress blackness. And we've seen time and time again that we want to focus only on the future and moving forward. Let's not talk about our ugly past. We're beyond that. We don't have to dwell on the past. But until we reckon with the history of this nation that is founded on Black chattel slavery that is steeped in an ideology of white supremacy that still pervades all the laws, all the structures, all the policies and customs that undergird our society, until we come to terms with that, until we reckon with that, acknowledge that, and then understand how we have to disavow that in order to move forward, there's going to be no meaningful change. And with that, I want to say thank you so much to Stacey Hawkins, to Reverend Mark Kelly Tyler, to Professor Charles Gallagher, to Erica Almaro for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. 
Next up, a Philadelphia man helped court Richmond shop owners save thousands during civil unrest. They get into the car with bundles of clothes, and uh, I said, oh, 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 no. How a security agent convinced looters to return merchandise. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community and a security guard saved store owners thousands when he stopped looters from taking merchandise from a Port Richmond shopping center during last week's riot. Here to share his story is our Patriot Home Care changemaker, EPA Detective Lamont Hudson. All right, Detective Hudson, welcome to Flashpoint. How you doing? I'm awesome. First of all, the video that I saw was out of this world. Please describe what happened. I do patrolman work on the Air Mango Bed, which is Air Mango Business Improvement District for a nonprofit organization called Impact. Basically, we have a good relationship with all the stores. There's over 150 stores during the, the corridor. This particular day, of course, all the riots were going on. We got a call from one of the stores. Hey, they rioting. I'm like, what? So we rushed into this one particular store, and we were responding to multiple stores. So this particular store, we have a great relationship with. Uh, we always get calls there. For some reason, some of the ladies like to um, shop, shoplift there. So this particular day, we get called, and, you know, they're coming out the glass. They get into their car with bundles of clothes. And uh, I said, oh, 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 no. He's patrolling with a shotgun at this particular day because of all the looting that was going on in the, in the week. They was trying to leave in the vehicle, so I took it out, and I told him to get out, get on the ground. And um, so that they did it peacefully. It was an incident, and they realized they was caught and they couldn't do anything, so they, they lay on the ground. I realized that the ground was hot, <laughs> so I made them get off the ground uh, in a sunny area and laid in a shade area. At the same time, the, the regional director for Mad Rags was there, plus two uh, of the co-workers was also there, and they was able to retrieve their um, items back out of the vehicle, which you had saw in the video. We were just running back and forth, and I think the second half, you saw the video of me um, trying to retrieve some sneakers from uh, Foot Locker. And that was in the out, the back of the alleyway. But we was in the front part. We was just OC spraying and you know knocking boxes out. I was trying to. I was hoping that the police would come while we was there so that we can you know lock down that particular store and get it under control. But they didn't come out in time. And then my partner notified me that we we're getting overwhelmed with people. So we it's probably best just to leave. Uh, so that we can be safe. And so what was going through your mind when you made these people uh, put the stuff down and, and bring it back? You know, my training kicked in. Like I said, we have a great relationship with all the store owners. And I'm just like, 
why are you doing this? This has got nothing to do with the death of this man, of this man getting murdered by a cop. And you, you loot in your own neighborhood. This is not going to help out. So all the stores are pretty devastated because the owners, they spend all their hard-earned money into these stores, and they, you know, they hire from the neighborhood. So it was, it was, it was very sad at the moment, you know. And I didn't want to. We don't usually point our guns at anybody unless there's a weapon in their hand, or they're, or they're trying to do property damage. So we do our best not to point our weapons at anybody. But in this case, we had to try to get under control. It was just very uh, emotional for me, and I said, "This is not what it's supposed to be," you know. Yeah, it, it it seemed like a moment because it's just like, you know, at the same time, were any arrests made, I should ask that, or were you just stopped the looting for, at this one store and then? I asked them, I always give the client, I ask them, do you want to press charges? And they have the option to say yes or no. They didn't really want to lock nobody up, you know, which it was pretty much forgivable. You know, they had mercy on the people, and they just be let them go, leave the area. Now, earlier in the morning, uh, the gentleman that had robbed the jewelry store, I think it was like maybe five or five or six of them, they got arrested in, pro- uh, in the process. But as they was getting <laughs> processed and getting arrested, other stores were being looted at the same time. So the cops were not prepared for this on Hermanger Avenue. And it's almost like because of the overwhelming number of people, it's like how can you, if you only have so many police officers, at a certain point, trying to lock people up, you can, I mean, you're losing more than you're saving by locking a couple people up. Correct. So all the major business improvement districts were getting hit. So they, it was kind of hard for them to respond to everything at the same time. And that's why they had recruited some other law enforcement agencies to uh, help out with the situations around the, you know, around the city. So... It was, it was very, it was bam, one big hit, and then, you know, throughout the day, they constantly hitting the stores for leftovers. So it was just like, like how are we going to get this under control and what are we going to do? So majority of the stores uh, beforehand, if there wasn't an essential store, had boarded up their windows. And I was making suggestions that if you were not a uh, essential store, start boarding up majority of your windows and doors so that, you know, there wouldn't be any looting because of the COVID-19. But some stores didn't take heed to that. Yeah. Any silver lining to all of this this activity that you've seen? I think this will, I think some of the businesses would get more closer together, you know, versus compete and things like that. I think they'll have to put like a better network system together. Uh, I'm talking to the, the Air Mango bit about putting possible some changes, some cameras to make the business owners and customers and staff safer. You know, so at the same time, while I'm here, not only for looting, but I also look at for uh, overdose in the in parking lot. We have a, a staff that are trained and uh, overdose. So just want to keep a closer eye on everything that's happening in the parking lots. Uh, and within the stores, uh, I do have passion for people. I like serving. Uh, you were <laughs> definitely on it. <laughs> so thank you for all that you do, and thank you for uh, being on Flashpoint. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat.
We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As progressive author and pundit DeShane Stokes once said, privilege is not knowing that you're hurting others and not listening when they tell you. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>